Hello, and welcome to In All of Us Command. I'm Aaron. I'm Kate. And I'm Phil. And we will be learning about national anthems. Each week we will choose a new country at random. We will learn a little bit about this country, and then we will listen to their anthem. After listening, we will rate the anthem based on several criteria and see how they all stack up in our humble opinion. We don't want you to think because of the title that we're big fans of O Canada. In fact, we plan to dunk on it pretty much constantly over the course of the show, and we do not expect it to finish highly in the rankings at all. So this week, we are talking about Madagascar. This is an exciting one. I know where Madagascar is. Yeah, I feel like everyone kind of knows where Madagascar is. You have that moment in like grade three where you're like, what's that island off of Africa? (laughs) And then your teacher says, and it's such a cool name that you just remember it forever. Also, wait, is it Madagascar that has... No, oh, no. I've been thinking about the Galapagos Islands. Never mind. I thought the Madagascar was the Galapagos Islands. Yeah, different places. Yeah, we were talking earlier about the Galapagos Islands and... Oh, no, that was Papua New Guinea. Yeah. And how confusing that was. Anyway, different thing for another day. (laughs) So Madagascar went uh, more or less completely unsettled by humans until actually about 700 CE is when the first people arrived there. So quite recently in the grand scheme of things, about uh, 15 or 14, 1300 years ago. I'm bad at math. (laughs) Uh, we're not actually exactly sure how the first people really arrived in Madagascar, though, because, Kate, we've researched a number of countries now that are in that region of Bantu-speaking Africa, down yeah. in, like, the southeast uh, quarter of it there. Yeah. Uh, Phil Bantu is a language group in Africa, like Swahili, for example, is a Bantu language. Uh, and Madagascar is right off the coast of that area where they speak Bantu, but it was actually first settled by, as far as we can tell, peoples from Indonesia uh, and Malaysia. Like it's the the language is most closely related to languages from Borneo. Huh. So people came from like the other direction, kind of. Yeah, came from Southeast Asia and settled in Madagascar. And there have for a long time been like Bantu loan words and Bantu influence on the language, but it is at its roots, a Malaysian language rather huh. than an African one. So the, the first people there came the long way around to the island, not the really short way from Africa? Well, they came from from Asia across the Indian Sea. Mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting. Instead of making that like short hop. Yeah, that, from... that little short hop. Yeah, exactly. That's cool. I like that. Uh, so the language that is spoken in Madagascar, and for that matter, the name of like the the people themselves is Malagasy. Uh, So if you hear me talking about like the Malagasy, this, that just means like from Madagascar, basically. Um, So just for some context of exactly where it is, it is off the coast of Mozambique, most directly the North and South edges of the Island roughly line up with the North and South borders of Mozambique. Okay. Um, Nearby island nations as well include Comoros and Mauritius, I believe it's pronounced. So these were all 
uh, heavily colonized nations. And there are a couple islands about the size of Comoros right nearby. Comoros was a French territory and these other small islands still are. Um, so for roughly 800 years or so, the Malagasy settlers start to spread throughout the island, mostly operating as like a group of probably two dozen interconnected tribes. Uh, and they're inner squabbles, but really not a lot of contact with the outside world at this point. Uh, and really no notion of the island as a nation in itself. Uh, during this period, I think there was some contact with the Arab world. I'm, sources were really unclear about this, and I'm not sure if that was just Eurocentrism in the particular sources I was looking at or like scholarly debate over what actually happened here. Um, but there were some people that would become known as the Zafiraminia that uh, at the very least claimed to be refugees from like the civil wars, the wars of succession following Muhammad's death. And that's like the debate over Muhammad's succession is at least to my understanding what started this whole Sunni and Shia rift. So this is like sectarian violence that is ongoing to this day uh, that that would have caused these people. And that's sort of their first contact with the Arab world. Uh, but it would f the island would first be discovered by Europeans in the year 1500, right on the dot, uh, when it was spotted by a Portuguese explorer named Diogo Diaz. It's uh, a good name. Some yeah. of these explorers mm -hmm. we've talked about, oh, yeah. they have good names. It's true. <laughs> and he pretty much, as far as I can tell, spotted it and kept sailing. Uh, didn't Which has also happened before and surprises me. You can't stop at every no, island you if can't. you got somewhere you gotta be. <laughs> but I'm just picturing like an old timey guy on the front of a ship being like, aha, land, but we will not stop there. <laughs> Onwards. I don't know. Uh, so the, the French would establish a colony in the southeast of the island in 1642, but it would be pretty much abandoned by 1670 or so. Uh, there would be further Arab immigration around the time of European contact in that early 16th century, and this group of immigrants would come to be known as the Antimoro, and they would become integrated into southern Madagascar, where they would actually found their own Muslim theocratic state in the early 17th century. Uh, this would be the first state in Madagascar to have written texts, and those were written in the Malagasy language, but in Arabic script. Oh. Um, so I didn't find a lot of people delving into the, this sort of Antimoro kingdom in any detail, but it, it was mentioned and I thought that was an, an interesting little blip. Mm -hmm. Uh, during the late 17th century, there was a popular pirate sailing route known as the pirate round. Uh, I guess people who sailed this route were known as roundsmen. And they, this would lead from the Atlantic Ocean around the southern tip of Africa and through to the Indian Ocean, where Madagascar became like a really important resupply stop for a lot of these pirates working the round. Uh, so for this brief blip in like the late 17th, early 18th century, it is like a pirate haven, which is super fun. That's so cool. <laughs> that absolutely rules. 
in the mid 17th century, though, two important dynasties would begin to form. And these are going to shape a lot of the, the future of Madagascar. So the Maro Sarana dynasty formed in the southwest seemingly out of nowhere. No one's really sure where the Maro Serena dynasty came from. Uh, but they would, uh, some people though would suggest that they come from the Mutapa kingdom, which we will probably talk about in a number of episodes. It was a mainland African power that spread across Zimbabwe, Zambia, Mozambique, and South Africa. Uh, but they would establish two states in western Madagascar known as Menabe and Boina. And those two states would eventually merge to create what was known as the Sakalava Empire. So that is a lot of western Madagascar at this point is the Sakalava Empire. But at the same time this is happening, the Andriana Marina dynasty would form in central Madagascar, and they would go on to form the Marina Kingdom in central Madagascar under King Ralambo. And they would have the city of uh, Antanarivo as their as their capital, Antananarivo. A, a weird quirk of the Malagasy language that I have found is as an English speaker, they repeat a lot of syllables in a way that my English speaking brain just totally glosses over. Uh, so Antananarivo is the name of the capital. You want to like take out the extra one. Exactly. Almost. Exactly. Yeah. And there's there's a couple times where my my brain is going to try to do that. <laughs> Uh, and that that is the modern capital of Madagascar, Antananarivo. Uh, though the first century of the Marina Kingdom would be marked by civil war, they would end up being united under a guy named King Andriana, Andrianum Poina Marina. Uh, so in the early 19th century, Europe is really starting to ramp up its colonial efforts in Africa, as as we have well learned at this point. <laughs> yes. uh, King Radama I is concerned about the number of French trading posts along the eastern coast, and I believe Radama is a marina king. Uh, so he would ally himself with Sir Robert Farquhar, who was governor of the nearby uh, island of Mauritius, which was at the time a British colony. So he would use this deal to purchase weapons from the British and use those weapons to capture one of France's largest trading posts on the island in 1817. From there, he would retake pretty much the entire east coast of the island. Uh, shortly yes. after, <laughs> the north of the island also fell to the Marina Kingdom. The Sakalava Empire, meanwhile, is being weakened by religious strife, I guess, there is a lot of debate over whether, you know, we are a traditional Malagasy faith nation or we are a Muslim nation. And the weakened Sakalava Empire would also fall to the Marina Kingdom at this point. So the Marina Kingdom, there's still small patches of the island that don't officially belong to them. But for all intents and purposes, they own all of Madagascar at this point. So it was like in 1870, they just kind of took over the whole of Madagascar? 18, Re like 20. 18, yeah. 20, they reclaimed, sorry, Madagascar. Yeah. Uh, Go Marina. 
But Radama, this this Marina King, he was very friendly with the British and he would end up inviting members of the London Missionary Society to the kingdom and adopting the Latin alphabet rather than the Arabic script they had been using prior. Okay. Uh, They've got a whole like mishmash. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really fascinating and we're we're going to see a bit later how their unique status as a whole people of like african asian people how that shapes their identity in the modern age and that's gonna be such a fucking great story i cannot wait yeah you've been hyping this for days the time spent as a pirate stop like as a main pirate port also would definitely change what your like population dynamic is oh for sure yeah so when Radama died in 1828, he would be succeeded by succeeded by his widow, Rana Valona I. And she seems to be, for some reason, a polarizing figure. Like, some sources only acknowledge her so far as to say that she undid some of that friendliness to the British. She kicked out the Christian missionaries, and she pushed back against her son's, like, Europeanization policies. And in some sources, that's all she is. Um, However, I also found a number of articles called things like The Mad Queen of Madagascar and The Terror of Queen Ranavalona the First. Like, is it just because she's a woman that everyone was like, she's also crazy? No. Is it because she's a woman that hated the British and was getting Christians out of their country? I don't think so. Because there there are articles that claim there are people that are, like, big fans of her still. And I'm genuinely not sure how. At the time when she ascended the throne, the population of Madagascar was about 5 million. At the time when she left the throne, the population was 2.5 million. What'd she do? Uh, just... <laughs> Sorry, but like... Well, I need no, to know, there's like, something. I need to know the facts before we start blaming You don't just queen. ask 3 million people yeah. so by accident. She reinstated a policy of forced labor as tax payment that would oh. remain in place for a long time afterwards. She cancelled a number of trade deals with both the British and the French and really pushed this isolationist policy to the point that... When she was rushing these missionaries out of the country, she executed, I believe, 16 of them and put their heads on pikes on the beach. Uh, she the executed <laughs> Christians in in Madagascar, like Malagasy Christians, in the most horrific of ways. She started persecuting criminals with uh, an ancient punishment where you had to swallow like three chicken skins and a poisonous nut and then if you vomited up all three chicken skins, you were innocent. Uh, what? What do you mean by, ch- like, the, like, the... Like the skin of a chicken. Wow. The whole thing or, like, a piece of? Mm-hmm. They said three chicken skins, okay. so I'm going to say three chicken skins. I kind of feel like I would be innocent of all crime, because I don't think I could get one chicken skin down. No, you chicken. need to get them all down, and then you need to eat poison, and then you need to survive and also vomit up all three chicken skins. And if you don't vomit all three of them, you get executed. But then you've still got the poison not yep. to worry about. Yeah. Okay, this sounds to me like one of those things, those like medieval witch trial businesses where it's like we light the person on fire and if they burn, they're awake, like that kind of thing. Yep. Uh, <laughs> okay. Of like, there's there's one famous story about a buffalo hunt that she sent her court on. 
she sent like 50,000 people on a buffalo hunt and lost upwards of 20,000 of them on a single hunt. That's a lot of people for one buffalo That's very hunt. suspicious. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she She's, the, like I said, there are articles that claim that people still look up to her and I genuinely can't imagine why. I went into this so prepared to be a Rana Valona <laughs> fan and and I was not. I know, yeah. I agree. I also was like, well, let's, let's hear the facts before we start tearing her down. Yeah. It's kind of hard to defend that buffalo thing. But I also want to know what guy like rolled out of bed one morning and was like, I know how we're going to judge the criminals now. It's got to be the chicken skin. <laughs> That's the only way. So upon her husband's death, the way she managed to ascend the throne, it actually, she was her husband's first wife. And by that standard, any of their children should have been heirs to the throne. However, they had had no children. So... It was going to go to the king's nephew, who she had killed, and then she <laughs> locked that guy's mom in a room until she starved to death. Wow. Well, that is, that's just royalty stuff. People are doing, like, royalty will, was always doing stuff like that. I'm not going to judge her. Like, she's on the same scale as you judge any other king or queen who are always just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go kill an entire, like, room of babies. Her son participated in a number of unsuccessful coup attempts against her, but would actually, like, somehow she didn't fucking kill the guy, and he would ascend the throne when she died. Appropriately, at her funeral, um, a barrel of gunpowder would catch fire and explode, killing several attendees and destroying a large swath of the royal compound. Why was there a barrel of gunpowder at the funeral? Because you always bring your barrel of gunpowder. Yeah, maybe just like at the royal compound, I guess. Someone was like, oops, flicking a match at it, you know. So she, yeah, she killed a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. she was, she was pretty nuts. And her death killed a lot of people. Yeah. Well, honestly, I think I'm still a fan. Her, I want to look at her policies. <laughs> Her son, Radama II, would reverse a lot of these isolationist policies, but he would end up being overthrown by his army after two years. Uh, he was presumed dead after this coup, but there is actually some seemingly credible evidence that he survived and lived out the rest of his life as just, like, a normal guy. Mm. Hmm. Like, from prince to pauper? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I hope that happened for him, and he was... Just being a normal guy, that sounds kind of okay after everything. After you've done that many coups and been a part of just so many coups, just time to just throw in the towel and just like, I don't yeah. know, open up a sandwich store. And I think that's, you know, not necessarily the sandwich store, but I think that's pretty much what what he did, if if this is to be believed. Uh, so Prime, Minis Prime Minister Rainelia Veroni, who had led the plot would come to power through a marriage with Radama II's widow, Rasso Harina. And when she died, Rasso Harina, her cousin became uh, Queen Rana Valona II. And this prime minister guy also married her. Uh, when Rana Valona II died, another Marina noblewoman was named Queen Rana Valona III. And this prime minister also... Married her. Dude's really got a type. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so he managed to stay in power for about 30 years by just marrying all the queens. Uh, during Rainelia, Rainelia, 
Rivenny's time and power, he would adopt Protestantism as the state religion and make education under the missionaries compulsory. Oh, so, that's bad. But. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> the French would make an invasion in 1883 looking to restore the land that they had lost under Ranavalona I. With the Treaty of Tamatav in 1886, France would end up actually gaining part of Madagascar's northern coast instead, and they would enter into an informal kind of protectorate relationship with Madagascar. It's not really on the books as a protectorate, I think mainly because it's not internationally recognized that way. But in 1890, the British and French decide to make a trade between themselves, the British would gain control of Zanzibar, which is an archipelago that is an autonomous zone within modern-day Tanzania. In return, the British would recognize the French protectorate over Madagascar. So, Rainelia Rivani refused to submit to this diplomatically, and the French would be forced to invade again in 1895 under the command of a guy named General Joseph Gallieni. Uh, and he took Antona Narivo after an occupation of nearly a year. The queen uh, would sign a treaty recognizing the French protectorate, and Rainelia Rivani was exiled, dying a year later in Algeria, which was at the time another French protectorate. Uh, at his funeral, Galliani, the guy who had led this deposing of him, uh, was quoted as saying the following thing. Rainelia Rivani was worthy of leading you. In the years to come, will there be a monument erected in his memory? This should be an obligation for the Malagasy who will have the freedom to do so. France has now taken Madagascar, come what may, but it's a credit to Rainelia Rivani to have protected it the way he did. Which to me is just the most grotesque. <laughs> like overtly colonial statement you could make like yeah we took over your country he was a great leader you're right you should build statues of him but we wanted it so we took it at the end of the day who cares who has madagascar it's us but who cares it's not what's important right now yes he's dead because of us but also so over the next couple years, Galliani would be named governor general of the colony. He abolished the forced labor policies that Rana Valona had put in place, and he put down guerrilla resistance to French rule across the previous Marina Kingdom. So Galliani has now effectively ended the Marina monarchy that's been hanging around for such a long time. He would unify the entire island before leaving the post in 1905, having put French people in positions of power across the island and made French the official language of Madagascar. Uh, just a fun side note, he would, I think he retired after this, but would be brought out of retirement during World War I to briefly be made France's minister of war during the early war. Uh, I understand that he clashed quite a bit with the higher-ups in this Minister of War position. He was, like, brought back to be a puppet and then wasn't. Um, but I don't want you to get an image of Galliani as one of these, like, globe-trotting, saber-wielding Africa conquerors that, that they love to push. Like, he was supposedly quite a frail man. And being brought out of retirement into World War One 
by all reports, completely destroyed his health and he would die shortly afterwards. I'm glad you said that because I was picturing him as one of those saber wielding Africa yeah. conqueror types. And I want us all to remember that Galliani is a fucking nerd. <laughs> <laughs> Man, going to work killed him? Yeah. Yeah. It can happen to anybody. Um, Aaron, you said there, like it was that he instated like the the French language. Do people still speak French in Madagascar, or yes, is it mostly Malagasy? My understanding is that the official language is in a bit of a weird gray zone at the moment. Yeah. Um. I I think a lot of the educated population speaks French as a holdover from this French colonization. Yeah. Uh. I think, in general, more people speak Malagasy than speak French. Okay. Uh, So, railroads and automotive roads started to be spread across the country in the early 20th century, and the cities would begin to be modernized. Uh, This is really important with money loaned to them from France. So, as a French subject, thousands of Malagasy men would be drafted to the French military for World War I. And... Like, World War I is not the same thing as World War II. It's, it's a war that, like, I can see why people who weren't, whose land wasn't being threatened by World War II would have wanted to participate in the war. The people of Madagascar have no fucking reason to want to participate in this war that's all about borders in Europe. It's not about crimes against humanity the yeah. same way it's like, like sure i'll go stand in your trench in france that sounds like a great time yeah so during the war we start to see a nationalist secret society crop up and these are called oh, thanks a lot uh autocorrect <laughs> uh i don't know their name in malagasy because autocorrect ruined it but they were known as the iron and steel network is what it translated to Uh, They would begin recruiting members over the course of the war, but they would end up being outlawed by the French in 1915, and a lot of the members would be sentenced to forced labor camps. After World War I, coffee, vanilla, and tobacco would be introduced to the agriculture through European trade and would become important staples of the Malagasy economy. By this point, roughly half of the population is Christian, but nationalism is still spreading and the people are increasingly unhappy with the French occupation of the island. So there's a popular campaign in the Malagasy press at this point to give the people of Madagascar French citizenship. And as this popular campaign gets no response, it starts to radicalize and turn again to nationalism. Yeah. <laughs> uh the Malagasy people would again be drafted into the French military for World War II, and when the French government falls and the Vichy regime is installed, the people of Madagascar would be forced to work with the Vichy regime until the island is occupied by the British and, I believe, the South Africans in 1942. Uh, so after that, they are working with the Allies Uh, France's 1946 constitution would create the French Union, which we've talked about one or two times before. It's kind of the sequel to the French Empire and the beginning of the transition out of the French Empire. Yeah. Uh, With this setup, Madagascar was made an official overseas territory of the French Republic. So that's at least a promotion from where they were. 
1947, a nationalist rebellion would spring up in eastern Madagascar. The official death count for the French response to this rebellion is recorded as around 11,000, but most scholars agree that it should be several thousand higher. Uh, In 1956, the Social Democratic Party, or the PSD, because they speak French, uh, is founded in Madagascar by Philibert Siranana. And in 1958, France passes a new constitution which would allow their overseas territories to decide their own fate. So this is, again, a big deal for a lot of these overseas territories of France. Madagascar voted to become an autonomous territory within the new French community, which I guess is now the sequel to the French (laughs) Union. They're just like inching towards independence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we're just a community of countries that all, you know, kind of know the same French guys from a while ago. It's not so different from the British Commonwealth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, would be in office with the PSD, uh, and at This period, they are known as the Malagasy Republic, not as Madagascar. However, the French community is a very short-lived institution, with more or less every country leaving by 1960. So Madagascar would become fully independent on June 26, 1960, with Siranana as its president. And Siranana would hold office until 1972, when there was an uprising against his rule. He dissolved the government and handed over power to General Gabriel Romanantsoa. And this is the end of the First Republic of Madagascar. Uh, under Romanantsoa, many agreements with France are severed, and the country starts to align itself instead with the Soviet Union. In response to a lot of popular unrest, Romanantsoa hands over the government instead to one of his previous cabinet members, who was assassinated after less than a week in office. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> after several more months of unrest, a guy named Didier Ratsiraka is named president and establishes in ni- December of 1975 the Democratic Republic of Madagascar. Ratsiraka created a large coalition of left-wing parties that were the only people permitted to participate in this government. So if you weren't one of his in-group, you weren't allowed to do government, basically. Oh yeah, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) He would continue to align the country with the Soviet Union. Uh, Madagascar struggled really heavily under Ratsiraka's presidency to make good on their loans from France that they had taken out to modernize their infrastructure back in the day. That's now coming back to bite them as they're unable to make those payments. So under Ratsiraka, the fucking coolest revolutionary movement of all time sprang up. So we're now talking about the late seventies, early eighties. This is where Bruce Lee is becoming an international superstar Everyone is in love with Bruce Lee's movies and the youth of Madagascar are starting to really wake up to that part of their Asian heritage and get psyched that, you know, they've sort of got more of a claim to that heritage than the rest of Africa does. So a lot of these 
unhappy, disenfranchised youths across Madagascar start hanging out at kung fu clubs and violently demonstrating against the government. Yes, that's rad. (laughs) The government's Ministry of Youth and Sports responded by banning the practice of kung fu. (laughs) And the kung fu clubs protested this by burning down the Ministry of Youth and Sports. (laughs) Oh, I thought they were going to do more kung fu, but they burned <laughs> burned down a building. I was like, oh, they're going to get some mad kung fu action for doing that. Well, no, I, no. I think a- there was quite a bit of mad kung fu action before this all escalates into an open clash where the government kills like the leader of the movement along with at least 20 and as many as 200 others, also imprisoning over 200 people. And these are all youth? Yeah, I I think it was mostly people in like the 18 to 25 kind of range. And and this is now 1985, I think early 85 that this that this clash happens. So that is the short-lived kung fu rebellion of Madagascar. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. I love that. I, I do kind of want to see if there's a movie about that. That would be pretty cool. I couldn't find a lot of places going into depth on it, so maybe it's a thing that there needs to be a movie, a movie about. about. You gonna make that movie, Phil? I think I'm gonna try. <laughs> Might not be my movie to make necessarily, seeing as I'm not from Madagascar and don't know anything about kung fu. I I think I'm the audience for it. If anything, I'll, <laughs> I'll watch the movie. When I'm... I'd watch the movie too. In response to the economic hardship of the nation, Ratsaraka would begin privatizing privatizing businesses, which eventually led... I, I'm not an economic guy, so I'm not going to go into the whole outline of how this happened, but it led to a situation wherein a lot of Ratsaraka's cronies were essentially able to buy businesses for pennies on the dollar and make themselves super rich and powerful. So... People aren't thrilled about this, but he somehow gets reelected in a probably suspect election in 1989. Uh, This led to protests by the Council of Malagasy Churches, and they were calling for socialism to be removed from the Constitution. In 1990, Ratsaraka makes a concession where his coalition is no longer the only thing allowed to do government. Uh... The Vital Forces Party would be formed at this point by a guy named Albert Zaffi, who would go on to create a counter-government and inspire a general strike. So Zaffi has set up, you know, not in the official government building, but has just started saying, I'm the leader of Madagascar, rather than Ratsiraka. Uh, when demonstrating in 1991, when Zafi's people are demonstrating, and Zafi himself for that matter, Ratsaraka's government would shoot at the demonstration of the counter-government, killing several people and injuring Zafi himself. Uh, after international intervention, Zafi would essentially be made the head of state over Ratsaraka as president. Like, Ratsaraka didn't lose his office, but they made a new more important position and gave that to Zafi. <laughs> One-upping. Yeah. <laughs> so Zafi would draft the constitution of the Third Republic of Madagascar and would be elected its first president in 1993. He was put in the undesirable position of either watching his country starve 
or accepting foreign aid that came with stipulations that were really unpopular with the rest of the government, like the people who had put him into power, basically. So unable to find any funding without these unpopular strings attached, he was impeached in 1996. This led to a contested election where Ratsiraka was re-elected. He used this opportunity to revise the constitution and extend the powers of the presidential office. Wow, big surprise. (laughs) There was another election in 2001 where there was no clear winner, but Ratsiraka's biggest opponent would begin agitating, basically saying, like, we did win and the results were tampered with. So this is a guy by the name of Mark Ravallo Manana, and he would seize the government in 2002 uh, as the head of his hilariously named I Love Madagascar party. (laughs) (laughs) Really? That's awesome. I'm glad. He did. It'd be great on a t-shirt. Yeah. (laughs) This would eventually cause Ratsiraka to free the country. So Ravalo Manana worked to bring back foreign investors to the island and managed actually to have the World Bank and the IMF write off half of Madagascar's outstanding national debt in 2004. In 2006, he would win the presidency again, this time in a free election. In 2008, however, Mayor of Antananarivo, Andre Rajoelina, would begin accusing Ravalo Manana of being a dictator and leading protests against him, eventually leading to Rajoelina losing his mayoral seat in response. Uh, Rajoelina, though, announces plans to create a counter-government again with himself in charge, and the military bit by bit would begin to come over to his side. So Ravalo Manana, Manana... Uh, I keep trying to pronounce this like it's Spanish, but it's not, uh, would be forced to hand power over to the military, who in turn would be forced to hand it over to Rajoelina. Uh, Rajoelina's rise to power, though, was not internationally well looked upon. This is pretty clearly a coup. Uh, So people are starting to isolate the country again. People are starting to back away. Pro-Rivalo Manana demonstrations would continue until a UN-sponsored mediation, which brought together both sides as well, weirdly, as bringing in uh, both Zafi and Ratsiraka to decide how to transition the government. Like, these two guys have been trying to kill each other for a while. Let's bring in the last two guys who are trying to kill each other and see how they want to pitch in. Well, it is like, hey, clearly there's some, this is what happened last time, is someone just said, I'm the president of madagascar now so we have to like set, put all this to bed both generations of this yeah so rajolina isn't willing to give up his post as presidency in these talks so really any any solution that goes forward with anything other than rajolina remains president is a, a non-starter in this committee which sucks uh these talks eventually fall apart Rajolina goes back to Madagascar and charges Rivalo Manana with murder in absentia, sentencing him to life in prison. Uh, Rivalo Manana has obviously not gone back to Madagascar, but these charges are still out against him. Uh, Rajolina would revise the constitution again and lower the presidential age requirements to allow himself to take office, founding the Fourth Republic of Madagascar in 2010. 
in 2013, there was an election where everyone internationally was like, okay, Rajolina, you're not allowed to run. Ravalo Manana, you're not allowed to run. And everyone was waiting to see who announced for the presidency. And then Ravalo Manana's wife ran for the presidency. <laughs> so Rajolina was like, fuck you, I'm running. And then also Ratsaraka was like, you know what? I'll run too. I was going to say, is Ratsaraka <laughs> getting back into this again? This guy loves to be president of Madagascar. Uh, so that election got called off by the high courts. And the election that was held in its place was won by basically one of Raja Alina's cronies, I think. Uh, Raja Alina has since reclaimed the presidency and is the incumbent president of Madagascar. That brings us up to the modern day. That was really interesting. I've got just a a short fun fact section for you. I could find very few famous people from this country, so this won't take like half the episode like it sometimes (laughs) does. Uh, I've got a... I couldn't find that much interesting about this guy, to be honest. He sounds like a super stuffy writer, and unlike some other novelists we've learned about, I have no interest in reading his stuff. Claude Simon, Simone was a French novelist born in Antananarivo who won the 1985 Nobel Prize in Literature. Cool. Um, 1985? Yes. Cool. Uh, that's really my only famous person that I'm going to drop on us. Most, the lists of famous people that I looked at were mostly like Rajo Alina, Ravalo Manana. It's like, yeah, yeah. We, we covered that. We know. <laughs> Madagascar is the world's fourth largest island after only Greenland, New Guinea, and Borneo are the only three larger islands. That surprises me. I didn't think about it as being that big. But yeah. Well, I, we're, I we're counting be. Australia in this case as a continental landmass sure. rather than an island. I think that's fair. Uh, it is one of 17 countries identified as mega diverse by the World Conservation Monitoring Center. Like in terms of people or in terms of nature? Flora and fauna. Ah, yes. Okay. Ah, so even though it isn't the Galapagos Islands, it still is mega diverse. Yes, it is incredibly diverse. There's a huge number of lemurs, reptiles, birds, and amphibians that are completely unique to Madagascar's ecosystem. Islands are so interesting for that. Yeah, like there's over 70 breeds of lemur that are endemic to Madagascar alone. Oh, wow. It's a lot of lemurs. Uh, Also, over 50% of the world's chameleon population live on Madagascar. Uh, It ranks, however, near the bottom of the world on the World Happiness Report, also in terms of average life expectancy and per capita GDP. It It is not a country that is in a good economic place. Uh, they're, they are the world's leading producer of vanilla, producing over 2,900 tons of vanilla every year. Second place is Indonesia, which produces roughly 2,300, and I don't think anyone else even cracks the 1,000 mark. Wow. Uh, the official animal is the zebu, and I Not wa- the lemur? No. Weirdly okay. enough, it is What's the zebu. Uh, it is a type of cattle. It's believed to be descended from the Indian aurochs. They're super weird looking and they are, they're, they're not unique to Madagascar. They're unique to sort of the whole Indian subcontinent okay. is, is the Zebu thing. 
uh, area, but I will definitely post a picture and I will show you guys one at the break because they are super weird looking. <laughs> uh, but that's everything I've got for the fun facts. We are going to take a break now. We're going to make our food, which is mofogasi. So these are like Malagasy yeasted pancakes, kind of. There's a special pan. Well, they're normally cooked over like a charcoal oven, but we don't have that. Uh, And then if you don't have that, they're normally cooked in like a fancy pan that we also don't have. So we're just doing them like pancake shaped. Sounds good. Yep. Uh, Yeah. So we'll take a break now and we are going to listen. This this anthem is the hardest thing I've had to pronounce the whole fucking episode. Uh, This is Rai Tanindrazanai Malala O. Welcome back. We have just taken a little listen to Re Tanandrazanai Malala O, or O Beloved Land of Our Ancestors. Uh, I'm just going to take a moment here and dive into the history of the anthem before we start sharing our thoughts here. So, Madagascar officially adopted the anthem in 1959 during that short lived French community period when they were the Malagasy Republic, is when this was first adopted uh the lyrics were written by a guy named pastor i don't know his first name everyone just listed him as like quote pastor uh pastor raha jason and he was a priest who was born in 1897 and was educated in that french missionary system that we talked about briefly in the history portion uh, the music was written by Norbert Rahari Soa, who was a music professor born in 1914, also similarly brought up within that missionary education system. So these guys are out to write a march in the European style that will be friendly to French ideals and French culture. And the prime minister at the time is Philibert Cyrenana, who was... The guy who gained the island's independence from France, to be fair, but was also someone who was very happy to remain within the French sphere of influence and, like, on France's good side. So, Cyrenana really encouraged this very Euro-friendly anthem that uh, Raha Jason and Rahari Soa had written together. 
that's really all I've got on the history. Wikipedia claims that it's often played on the accordion. However, I found quite a lot of versions of this and not a one of them even contained an accordion, as far as I could tell. So just whoever wrote the Wikipedia article likes to play it on the accordion and the rest of it we don't know. So that's really all I've got for the background story of this one. Um, I think basically these guys wrote it, Siranana liked it, it became the anthem during that Malagasy Republic period, and it was written with the intent of being like a very European friendly mm-hmm. anthem. Now that you say, when you said March, I'm like, oh. When you say March, I'm like, oh yeah, this is a, this is definitely like a European marching song, marching your, marching your people around as you do some sort of military adjacent exercise on a, on an independence day. Yeah. Like I was surprised when we were listening, Kate, I was surprised to hear you say that you didn't think it was very military because that first version is like as military as they come. The second version, I felt they did a good job, like leaving that Loosening behind up a, a little, little bit. Yeah. yeah to make it a song that people might actually want to listen to and not because it's it's so repetitive too it it's is. just like thumping you over the head at a certain point it's like yeah i got it i got it I and got that's it. that's the one version too that didn't lean into that repetition yes. as well yes which i think was an excellent artistic choice and definitely i think it was before some sort of sports event so people would be like get to the game <laughs> <laughs> that has moved us along yeah Let's talk about the lyrics a little bit. And I'm not crazy about these ones, to be honest. Phil, this is your first time on the show, uh, but our bellwether for like a very (laughs) standard boring anthem is like, God is good. Our country is good. God loves our country. That is exactly what this is in 17 to 18 verses. (laughs) But really only like three and we just repeat just them the chorus over and over again. Yeah, I agree. I find these lyrics really blur together for me. I can't kind of tell what's what. However, I read the French ones. Okay. And I felt like they have more poetry in them than the English ones. Oh, interesting. However, still very repetitive, still kind of all blur together. Is, um, is, Cause there's, there's no like turn of phrase that sticks out to me in the English lyrics. No. And I imagine these were natively written in French. Probably. It feels that way. It, French is a very formal language though, where it can be extremely difficult to like say what you're trying to say. Okay. It takes, like you'll see even the way it's written, like the French takes twice as long just in the writing right. as the English and the Mal, is it Malagasy? Malagasy. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it takes a long time to get there um which is just a fact not really a criticism um but anyway i thought there there were some nice phrases in the french one but as i said it's all kind of samey yeah these ones are a bit of a slog for me uh i'm probably gonna go i'm probably gonna go as low as a two and a half on these lyrics oh dang yeah I think I'm going to go, I was going to say four, but now I feel that's overly generous. Say what's in your heart. Three and a half. Phil? I'm I'm going to give them a five because five? this is my entry into, like, I'm going to be honest, I don't know a lot of other national anthems. Totally. That's so, why we're doing this. Exactly. We didn't either. <clears throat> so I can't, I can't like 
slag them too hard. If you said that what they're doing is essentially the bellwether for what like a, a an anthem is, I feel like that's at least a five. Like they showed up and they put in the work with the words. They got they got God, they got their country, and they got that God loves their country. So <laughs> that's can, fair. That's at least getting your name on the test. That's fifty percent. Yeah. To me. Okay. <laughs> I feel we've seen that, like that sort of boring subject matter executed a lot better is I, all I'm coming from here. Maybe I'm not as, as jaded from all the anthems, <laughs> all the like, anthems that you've heard. And we're not even a quarter, right? <laughs> no, of not, the way not even close. This, are we going to finish this? I ask myself this question a lot. I hope so. Me too. Me too. Okay. Let's um, talk music. The music though, I thought for all it's very marchy, in the original can clearly be interpreted. I mean, I'm not opposed to marches. Like I'm going to take, you know, I'm going to take some points away from this and X factor for the length. I'm probably going to take some points away in historical significance for trying to go super European with the whole style and instrumentation of everything. They did do that. But as it stands, if we're just looking at this as a European friendly March, it's not a bad one. No, it's not bad. Um, and I think there is a moment where there's like a like a bump 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 moment. That, yeah, that we we did catch the bump bump bumps. We were talking yes. about those, and it seems that the people of Madagascar did as well. And in that second <laughs> one, listen, because you can hear the crowd doing it, and I was like, oh, that actually would be really fun <laughs> to, to sing to do that every to, time yeah. to do that in a crowd with like a to do that in a crowd with a bunch of people, and I'll be like, to trust that everyone else is gonna do it with you and be like, yeah, you hear me. I could I could get. Like, along with it. Mm-hmm. Like, if yeah. it came on, I'd be like, yeah, this is fun. Yeah, I think music, I'm going to go maybe seven. Okay, yeah, I was probably going to go for a six and a half. I'm also going to give it a seven because it's not my my style of music. <laughs> like, I wouldn't throw it on. But if it came <laughs> on, I wouldn't be mad at it. And if I had to hear it every day um, before public school, I think I could. you could dance to it a bit. Yeah. You can sort of bob your head. Yeah. I was bobbing my head. Mm -hmm. It's all right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you can definitely move to it. The movement is marching. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about the background story. Now, this one's an interesting case. Not that it's really a, a particularly great story, but I feel the history we did gives us maybe more than ever a really good window into the moment in time that created this anthem. Like, what we know about the history explains to us how this story makes sense and how it happened. When you see the influence of, like, the French education system and the way Cyrano worked with the country, like, it's interesting the way that the creation, or interesting to me at least, the way that the creation of this anthem is tied into the history of the nation. And that's something we haven't seen a ton of uh, in my mind. It's true. Did you mention, was it a competition or did they just... I, I wasn't sure. It didn't really get mentioned okay. how exactly this piece came to Siranana's attention. A lot of other African countries had competitions. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Um, yeah, I agree. I think... I hadn't really thought about it that much my... Self, but when you said it kind of gives us a window into the into the specific time period, it, it is kind of a fun time capsule. And the fact that they haven't changed it either is um, quite something. Yeah. So, yeah. so I think I'm probably probably going for a six here on the background story. Yeah, I think I'm going to go maybe five. 
Phil, what do you think? I'm thinking also probably five. You know, it doesn't. It's not a. The fact that there's not a contest, that's a bummer. Um, <laughs> it just seems to have appeared when they needed an anthem because that was what they were doing in, a, in the time of nationhood. It was plucked by some guys. So just like a five, you know? They showed up. They have an anthem. They needed one at that time. Yeah. With regards to historical significance, though, I do think this is one of the anthem's weakest points. Though we've acknowledged it gives us a window into that moment in time there's a incredible lack of specifics I was and gonna say. like any references to anything that happened in the country's history or the country's geography and for again like what we talked about with Iceland for such a unique geographical anomaly of a place like I want more acknowledgement of all of that i want shout outs to the fucking lemurs and baobab <laughs> trees and all the cool <laughs> shit they have on madagascar yeah i agree the lack of specificity is n- noted do they refer to it as an island or just as this land I don't even know if they mention it's an island. No, they do mention it's an island. Okay, this well, island of our ancestors is in the oft repeated chorus. <laughs> That is good for me. I appreciate that. <laughs> the chorus does repeat a lot. Yes. Um, but does it tell you more about, like, if you listen to that, would you know more about Madagascar? Would you feel like you had a... I don't think so. An understanding of its yeah. people or its history? I would agree. I don't, I don't think I would. I don't think I would know more about them. And I don't I, even really get, like, a vibe, even, of what it would be like yeah so there. i think i'm maybe dropping down again to uh 2.5 on this one yeah i'm gonna go i'm gonna go four i'm i'm just gonna stick with five i feel bad giving them too low a score <laughs> D- don't some of these guys we've like walloped yeah and we repeat often that it's not about your country it's, it's only about, about the anthem. yeah and like, how we feel it compares to other anthems completely a number of the countries that we've we've scored very low we've been like this history was so much fun and so cool like i want for these people to have a better anthem to represent themselves and then you but, get lots of shout outs later as we laugh <laughs> <laughs> repeatedly um sorry brunei i wasn't gonna mention them this episode i was gonna give them a week off maybe next week uh x factor there's a bit i do think that second performance is really beautiful uh i you pointed out when we were listening to it that both the first and the third version and then kind of the second version that do have like fake out endings. And yes. I think that is sort of an X factor because there is a level of sort of suspense that you're like as a listener, as like a per like a if you're as someone if you live in Madagascar and you're like, oh, they're doing the anthem. Do you have in your mind when they start like how long is this going to be? Yeah. <laughs> is this going to be a two minute version or a four minute version? At everyone's graduation, they're like, oh. I remember sometimes at school, like there would be like for some reason like a really long version of O Canada that would play. They'd be like longer and like have instrumentals. You'd be like, "Damn, this <laughs> this sucks." Like let's uh, let's all just get to sitting down now. They'd play the Celine Dion <clears throat> version, and you all have to wait for like thirty seconds while she does runs at the end. Yeah. <laughs> 
So I think that gives it a level of X factor. Like it was an interesting song to listen to. And it definitely stands out for repeating itself a lot and not ending when you think it's going to. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. The The suspense factor is interesting. I hadn't considered yeah, that. Yeah, I hadn't really either. It's bringing me around a little bit. I think on X factor, I'm probably going to go six and a half. Okay. I was going to go five and a half. I'm going to, I'm going to give it an eight. Eight for Phil. All right. So we will take a little break then. I will tally up these scores and see what we've got as our total. Math time. So Madagascar is going to be coming in pretty close to the bottom of our list with a grand total of 52.5 out of 100. Dang, that still passes, though. Congrats, Madagascar. It does still pass. We've only had a couple failing grades so far. You you have an anthem. It counts. Yep. So let's address our food for a moment, because this was a really interesting one, and one that I really enjoyed. It was good. It was very unique. Mm. It's almost a cross between, like, pancakes and macaroons is, I think, a good way to sum it up. Yeah, the smell is definitely coconutty. It was sweet. Good to eat. Good with honey. Really good with honey. Yes. We The recipe recommended doing it with honey. We also decided to try them sort of Canadian style with butter and maple syrup. And those were also good. But honey is really the way to go if you're doing mofogasi. The flavor I found stood out a lot more. The, the maple was a little overpowered by the coconut. Yes. Yeah, I agree. The honey really blended with it beautifully. But it was good. I liked the little like crispy bits from the coconut. Yeah. It was good. So let's uh, take a moment then and find out what I'm going to be learning about for my next episode. Great. All right, I got a good number. Hit me with number 99. Number 99? Ooh. That's fun. Okay, okay. So you're going to be do. Oh, number 99 is Laos. Roll okay. again. Roll again. Roll again. Number eight. Number, oh, you're bouncing all over the place. Okay, number eight is Argentina. Argentina. Mm-hmm. Okay. Ooh. I'm into that. It's going to be interesting. Yeah, that'll be a good one. Um, and join us next week while I talk about Bosnia and Herzegovina. Awesome. Can't wait. we get something very wrong? Did we skip an entire part of the story that's worth mentioning? That's very likely, and we'd love to hear the correct version. Please tweet us at IAOUC podcast or send us an email at in all of us command podcast at gmail.com. We record these episodes a bit in advance, so you may not hear a correction right away, but we are not too big to admit we are wrong and it will be corrected.